Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, our theme is love, which we will explore from the classic love passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I want to encourage you to have that passage open as I preach, uh, as it is in your bulletin. Now, although this is one of the most well-known passages from the Bible, often read at weddings and on other occasions, I hope we can hear it with fresh ears this morning to hear it as the truly radical pronouncement that it is, both in the times in which Paul first penned it and in our own times. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do ask that you would teach us your ways and that you would lead us in your paths. In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the first things we notice about this passage is what precedes and what concludes it. In chapter 12, we recall Paul has been discussing the gifts of the Spirit and the life of the body of Christ made manifest in our unity with one another through the exercise of those gifts. He completes his thoughts in that chapter by announcing, I will now show you a more excellent way. Then after describing the features and excellencies of love, he concludes by telling us to abide in faith, hope, and love, but declaring the greatest of these is love. Now, this was especially important to the Corinthian church, where believers had created hierarchies around spiritual gifts, at the top of which uh, were the so-called super apostles. Paul flattens that kind of preference and partiality by insisting that first everyone is gifted by the Spirit, that everyone's contribution is vital, and that these gifts are given for the common good, as John Hare preached about two weeks ago. Paul flattens those practices of ranking members of the body and replaces them with a new hierarchy of virtues, at the top of which is the way of love. We then see this in the series of comparisons and contrasts he draws as he opens his meditation. Love, Paul argues, is the quality that exceeds and permeates any other expression of spiritual power. Tongues of angels, just making a racket without love. Prophetic powers and perception of all mysteries, faith to move mountains, Without love, nothing. Excessive acts of self-sacrifice, even of our own bodies. The giving away of all of it without love gains nothing, Paul says. Love is a more excellent way. The word in Greek there is transcendence. Love is the greatest. Now, that's not an unfamiliar sentiment in our culture. Indeed, if we were to survey people, most would probably agree. Love is supreme. It exceeds everything. Indeed, this view has been affirmed for centuries in cultures around the world. Last week, I celebrated a birthday. I won't tell you which one. 
And one of the gifts I got from money my mother had given me is a 1631 collection of meditations by St. Augustine, beautifully bound in 400-year-old vellum. It was Augustine who famously said that love is the beauty of the soul and that the measure of love is to love without measure. But of course, we wonder what we mean by love, let alone whether or not we actually practice it or are even capable of it. It was also Augustine who admits in his confessions that prior to his conversion, before he knew the two great commandments, he says, I loved to love. I was in love with loving. That might be a fitting epigram for the view of love we often find in our culture. And yet, even as we need to consider what love looks like, we know that there is not a day, not a moment in our waking hours when love is not required of us. And sadly, not a day when I don't fail to love. But what a profound and encouraging reality that God is love and his spirit, the one who enables us to mature in love. Indeed, as Karen reminded me, because God is love, we could substitute God as the subject of every statement that Paul makes to depict love in this passage. God is patient. God is kind. God is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, etc. And as John tells us in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. So what do we mean by love? As we read through Paul's list of love's qualities, we notice that each attests to both positive and negative distinctions, the latter calling for refusal and restraint. In fact, most of the descriptions of love that Paul offers in this passage are acts of resistance, not being envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, not insisting that I get my own way, not reacting with irritation or, regent, or resentment, not rejoicing in wrongdoing. All I have to do is get in my car and drive around New Haven, and I'm in the thick of opportunities to show love by such refusal and restraint, and regrettably in the thicket of my own selfishness when I do the opposite. For me, it is a miracle of supernatural empowerment to be patient or to show kindness instead of irritation or resentment to my wife, my children, my friends, my students and colleagues, my fellow human beings, my fellow parishioners. I need a work of the Holy Spirit daily to show the kind of love Paul describes here. In fact, I'd like, to, I'd like you to take a moment right now and think about a person or persons who bug you, perhaps misunderstanding or even hurting you, those whom you find difficult to love. They may even be in this congregation. It might even be me. <laughs> As you take this personal inventory, ask the spirit to give you the ability to love them with the qualities of love that Paul lays out before us.
It's significant also that in all of these love qualities, whether affirmed positively or negatively, one virtue that permeates them all is humility. Even rejoicing in the truth, which is a curious and often absent feature of our catalog of love qualities, requires that I submit to something, something that governs my outlook and behavior. To be truthful as an act of love against wrongdoing displaces my own will as the center of what guides me. It's also significant that the attitude Paul attaches to truth is joy. Truth can seem daunting to us, a commitment to it discomforting, or we fear even repressive. Yet here Paul tells us that love rejoices in the truth. It brings to mind the attitude of the psalmist towards the word of God, who delights in God's law and commandments, who loves them, he says. We notice as well in Paul's description that all of these qualities reach towards the flourishing of others. Not only in not doing harm to them by my own self-assertion, but seeking their good, even when they seek to do harm to me or seemingly to be harmful to others. I'll come back to this. In his classic work, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer observes how we create wish dreams for others, including our fellow members of the body of Christ. Here are some of mine, merely a, a fragment of a much longer, ever-evolving list. Some of these may sound familiar. I wish that people would recognize and appreciate me more for what I do. I wish that people would be more sensitive and more perceptive. I wish that people would be better, more careful thinkers. I wish that people would be more consistent in their commitments. I wish that people would realize that I'm right. I wish that people would always understand me and that I'm right. You get the idea. It's not that some of these don't express valid concerns about how we treat each other, but when I hold them up as obstacles to loving someone in the ways that Paul depicts here, refusing to love them instead of refusing what is not loving towards them, then I am the culpable party. So Bonhoeffer continues to love others with the kind of humble love that Christ has shown us. To regard others as more important than ourselves, so Paul to the Philippians. We must abandon our wish dreams for them. And, writes Bonhoeffer, receive each other for Christ's sake. Continuing in our passage from 1 Corinthians then, Paul also describes the singularly enduring quality of love. Love he writes, bears all things. No wonder we need a work of God's spirit in us. He continues, love also believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this, by the way, is why love exceeds faith and hope as the greatest quality. It is what must energize and, and guide our believing and our hoping. 
Indeed, Paul continues, any other quality of the spiritual life or the exercise of any other spiritual gift will not endure, as will love. Prophecies, he writes, will come to an end. Tongues will cease. Knowledge also will come to an end. Again, Paul has in mind the spiritual gift of knowledge in particular, not knowledge of everything will come to an end, certainly not a knowledge of God, but especially given the pursuit and esteem of knowledge that so many of us in our church are committed to, it's worth considering the supremacy of love as the truly superior thing it is as we are involved in these pursuits as well. A good friend of mine who did his PhD here at Yale and is now a professor of history recently told me about one of the best things he learned in graduate school. It goes like this. When you get your BA, you think you know everything. When you get your MA, you realize you don't know anything. When you get your PhD, you realize that no one knows anything. And we value knowledge, of course, and, and should, but Paul's point stands. Love outshines and outlasts it. Love never ends. Love endures all things. Love is the more excellent way. Paul ends his meditation first with an image of completion and maturity. The contrast here is between what is partial and what is perfect. His word for the latter here is teleon, whose root is telos which looks towards not only an ending, but the fulfillment of purpose, of what something or someone is made for. The difference between this and the partial Paul writes is like the difference between a child and being an adult. Children do childish things. Grown-ups acting childishly is not only an embarrassment, but it falls far short of what they are meant to become. My mother was recently recalling a time when she took our kids shopping. And when something upset our son, Tristan, who was only three at the time, he hurled himself onto the floor and threw a tantrum. My mother thought, hmm, this looks familiar. And she did what she did with one of her own sons who used to do the same thing quite often. I won't mention any names. She ignored him. It's what some kids do. But when that same son of hers, now in his 60s, is throwing a tantrum because he doesn't get his way or because someone irritates him or he feels unfairly treated or his plans are disrupted, when his wish dreams are thwarted, it's both embarrassing and a repudiation of what he was made to be in Christ. And what are we followers of Jesus made to be? lovers, ones who love like he loved, like he loves. We are, Paul insists, to be adult in that love. Paul concludes with a second image, still in this vein of the partial and the complete. His image is literally our image in a mirror like that used by James in his epistle, the man or woman in the mirror, which John Hare also preached on before. 
And as with James's use of this image, the features that Paul wants us to see are not ours only. The reflection is to be of love's perfection. That's the face we want to see, that we one day will see in the mirror, and the face we are to show to the world. We see it only dimly now, as it only gradually is coming into focus. John offers his own version of this process of this process in his first epistle. He writes, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. What Paul adds here is that we will also be like ourselves, completing what we are meant to become, our telos, the reflection of love's perfection. And that process will culminate in this aha moment, finally knowing fully, even as we have been fully known. This is our purpose, our ambition, our calling to be mature in love. I conclude with a couple of reflections related to love's calling. One regarding our church, the other regarding our current moments in America. And next week we have our annual meeting, which is mainly a celebration of what we have seen the Lord do over the past year, and also with an eye to this new year, as we accept the vestries, approve budgets, and confirm the appointment of our leaders. But as we look towards that gathering, I'd like to encourage you to pray for it this morning. Two prayers that we pray every week. For unity among ourselves manifested in love that we all may be one, significantly the first prayer in the prayers of the people, and that the Lord would make us instruments of his love in this coming year with one another and within our own broader communities. And if I may elaborate something I suggested earlier, that is in taking a personal love inventory of those whom you find difficult to love. Keep short accounts with other members of, of our church. You may not have seen it in your own experience, but I have seen how quickly the enemy can unravel unity from even the slightest rifts in a church's interpersonal relationships. So if someone hurts or offends you, or if you discover that you have hurt or offended someone else, please go to them directly. And if you are the one who has offended, no matter how unfairly treated or misunderstood you may feel, resist and refuse resentment. Engage the process of restoration with humility. Receive others for Christ's sake. I realize this is basic. This is Christianity 101. But I can't tell you how often I have seen this simple practice neglected. And then in regards to our current societal moment, 
I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about the many turmoils we face in our society right now, including the vitriol that characterized so much of our so-called public discourse, including at times by Christians. And he said something that has stuck with me. He said, we really need to be persuaded that love wins. I wonder of late if we believe this, that love really is the more excellent way, that love never ends, that it is the greatest thing. I wonder if we are willing to embrace our role as the face and feet and hands and lips of Christ to the world in everything we do and in everything we say. And by we here, I mean the people of God. What saddens and discourages me most in our present situation is how often those who claim to know Jesus, including me, refuse the extraordinary opportunity we have right now to be different. Whatever our own political persuasion or views on controversial issues. I'm not saying that these things don't matter or that they are disconnected from love, but they don't matter more than our loving. That is Paul's point. This is our moment, I believe, to show this. This call to love also begins, of course, in our own church, but it extends to all of our other contexts. I was rereading Martin Luther King's 1967 speech, Where Do We Go From Here, this week. And in this speech, Dr. King also wonders about the power of love and how love relates to power, especially when one is committed to change. To this, he says, power at its best is love. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. So he concludes, I have decided to stick with love, for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And he adds, I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. Interestingly, his text for this speech is the same passage from 1 Corinthians 13. This is our moment to demonstrate such love. The demands of which are not what we require of others, but what love requires of us. Paul's meditation is really our manifesto. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures and outlasts all things. Amen.